Volume One, Chapter Eight of The Last Man. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Eddie Winter. The Last Man by Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley. Volume One, Chapter Eight. In the meantime, what did Perdita? During the first months of his protectorate, Raymond and she had been inseparable. Each project was discussed with her, each plan approved by her. I never beheld any one so perfectly happy as my sweet sister. Her expressive eyes were two stars whose beams were love. Hope and light-heartedness sat on her cloudless brow. She fed even to tears of joy on the praise and glory of her Lord. Her whole existence was one sacrifice to him, and if, in the humility of her heart, she felt self-complacency, it arose from the reflection that she had won the distinguished hero of the age, and had, for years, preserved him, even after time had taken from love its usual nourishment. Her own feeling was as entire as at its birth. Five years had failed to destroy the dazzling unreality of passion. Most men ruthlessly destroy the sacred vow with which the female heart is wont to adorn the idol of its affections. Not so Raymond. He was an enchanter, whose reign was for ever undiminished, a king whose power never was suspended. Follow him through the details of common life. Still the same charm of grace and majesty adorned him. Nor could he be despoiled of the innate deification with which nature had invested him. Perdita grew in beauty and excellence under his eye. I no longer recognised my reserved, abstracted sister in the fascinating and open-hearted wife of Raymond. The genius that enlightened her countenance was now united to an expression of benevolence which gave divine perfection to her beauty. Happiness is, in its highest degree, the sister of goodness. Suffering and amiability may exist together, and writers have loved to depict their conjunction. There is a human and touching harmony in the picture. But perfect happiness is an attribute of angels, and those who possess it appear angelic. Fear has been said to be the parent of religion. Even of that religion is it the generator, which leads its votaries to sacrifice human victims at its altars. But the religion which springs from happiness is a lovelier growth. The religion which makes the heart breathe forth fervent thanksgiving, and causes us to pour out the overflowings of the soul before the author of our being, that which is the parent of the imagination and the nurse of poetry, that which bestows benevolent intelligence on the visible mechanism of the world, and makes earth a temple with heaven for its cope. Such happiness, goodness, and religion inhabited the mind of Perdita. During the five years we had spent together, a knot of happy human beings at Windsor Castle, a blissful lot had been the frequent theme of my sister's conversation. From early habit and natural affection, she selected me in preference to Adrian or Idris to be the partner in her overflowings of delight. Perhaps, though apparently much unlike, some secret point of resemblance, the offspring of consanguinity induced this preference. 
Often at sunset I have walked with her in the sober, enshadowed forest paths, and listened with joyful sympathy. Security gave dignity to her passion. The certainty of a full return left her with no wish unfulfilled. The birth of her daughter, embryo copy of her Raymond, filled up the measure of her content, and produced a sacred and indissoluble tie between them. Sometimes she felt proud that he had preferred her to the hopes of a crown. Sometimes she remembered that she had suffered keen anguish when he hesitated in his choice. But this memory of past discontent only served to enhance her present joy. What had been hardly won was now entirely possessed doubly dear. She would look at him at a distance with the same rapture, oh, far more exuberant rapture, that one might feel who after the perils of a tempest should find himself in the desired port. She would hasten towards him to feel more certain in his arms the reality of her bliss. This warmth of affection added to the depth of her understanding, and the brilliancy of her imagination made her beyond words dear to Raymond. If a feeling of dissatisfaction ever crossed her, it arose from the idea that he was not perfectly happy. Desire of renown and presumptuous ambition had characterized his youth. The one he had acquired in Greece, the other he had sacrificed to love. His intellect found sufficient field for exercise in his domestic circle, whose members all adorned by refinement and literature were many of them, like himself, distinguished by genius. Yet active life was the genuine soil for his virtues, and he sometimes suffered tedium from the monotonous succession of events in our retirement. Pride made him recoil from complaint, and gratitude and affection to Perdita generally acted as an opiate to all desire, save that of meriting her love. We all observed the visitation of these feelings, and none regretted them so much as Perdita. A life consecrated to him was a slight sacrifice to reward his choice. But was not that sufficient? Did he need any gratification that she was unable to bestow? This was the only cloud in the azure of her happiness. His passage to power had been full of pain to both. He, however, attained his wish. He filled the situation for which nature seemed to have moulded him. His activity was fed in wholesome measure without either exhaustion or satiety. His taste and genius found worthy expression in each of the modes human beings have invented to engage and manifest the spirit of beauty. The goodness of his heart made him never weary of conducing to the well-being of his fellow-creatures. His magnificent spirit and aspirations for the respect and love of mankind now received fruition. True, his exaltation was temporary. Perhaps it were better that it should be so. Habit would not dull his sense of the enjoyment of power, nor struggles, disappointment, and defeat await the end of that which would expire at its maturity. He determined to extract and condense all of glory, power, and achievement which might have resulted from a long reign into the three years of his protectorate. Raymond was eminently social. All that he now enjoyed would have been devoid of pleasure to him had it been unparticipated. But in Perdita he possessed all that his heart could desire. Her love gave birth to sympathy. Her intelligence made her understand him at a word. Her powers of intellect enabled her to assist and guide him. 
he felt her worth. During the early years of their union, the inequality of her temper, and yet unsubdued self-will which tarnished her character, had been a slight drawback to the fullness of his sentiment. Now that unchanged serenity and gentle compliance were added to her other qualifications, his respect equalled his love. Years added to the strictness of their union. They did not now guess at and totter on the pathway, divining the mode to please, hoping yet fearing the continuance of bliss. Five years gave a sober certainty to their emotions, though it did not rob them of their ethereal nature. It had given them a child, but it had not detracted from the personal attractions of my sister. Timidity, which in her had almost amounted to awkwardness, was exchanged for a graceful decision of manner. Frankness, instead of reserve, characterized her physiognomy, and her voice was attuned to thrilling softness. She was now three and twenty, in the pride of womanhood, fulfilling the precious duties of wife and mother, possessed of all her heart had ever coveted. Raymond was ten years older. To his previous beauty, noble mien, and commanding aspect, he now added gentlest benevolence, winning tenderness, graceful and unwearied attention to the wishes of another. The first secret that had existed between them was the visits of Raymond to Evadne. He had been struck by the fortitude and beauty of the ill-fated Greek, and when her constant tenderness toward him unfolded itself, he asked with astonishment by what act of his he had merited this passionate and unrequited love. She was for a while the sole object of his reveries, and Perdita became aware that his thoughts and time were bestowed on a subject unparticipated by her. My sister was by nature destitute of the common feelings of anxious, petulant jealousy. The treasure which she possessed in the affections of Raymond was more necessary to her being than the life-blood that animated her veins, more truly than Othello, she might say, to be once in doubt is once to be resolved. On the present occasion she did not suspect any alienation of affection, but she conjectured that some circumstance connected with its high place, had occasioned this mystery. She was startled and pained. She began to count the long days and months and years which must elapse before he would be restored to a private station, and unreservedly to her. She was not content that even for a time he should practice concealment with her. She often repined, but her trust in the singleness of his affection was undisturbed and when they were together, unchecked by fear, she opened her heart to the fullest delight. Time went on. Raymond, stopping midway on his wild career, paused suddenly to think of consequences. Two results presented themselves in the view he took of the future. That his intercourse with Evadne should continue a secret, or that finally it should be discovered by a Perdita. The destitute condition and highly wrought feelings of his friend prevented him from adverting to the possibility of exiling himself from her. In the first event, he had bidden an eternal farewell to open-hearted converse and entire sympathy with the companion of his life. The veil must be thicker than that invented by Turkish jealousy, the wall higher than the unscalable tower of Vathek, which should conceal from her the workings of his heart and hide from her view 
the secret of his actions. This idea was intolerably painful to him. Frankness and social feelings were the essence of Raymond's nature. Without them, his qualities became commonplace. Without these to spread glory over his intercourse with Perdita, his vaunted exchange of a throne for her love was as weak and empty as the rainbow hues which vanish when the sun is down. But there was no remedy. Genius, devotion, and courage, the adornments of his mind, and the energies of his soul, all exerted to their uttermost stretch, could not roll back one hair's breadth the wheel of time's chariot. That which has been was written with the adamantine pen of reality on the everlasting volume of the past. Nor could agony and tears suffice to wash out one iota from the act fulfilled. But this was the best side of the question. What if circumstance should lead Perdita to suspect, and suspecting to be resolved? The fibres of his frame became relaxed, and cold dew stood on his forehead at this idea. Many men may scoff at this dread, but he read the future, and the peace of Perdita was too dear to him, a speechless agony too certain and too fearful not to unman him. His course was speedily decided upon. If the worst befell, if she learnt the truth, he would neither stand her reproaches or the anguish of her altered looks. He would forsake her. England, his friends, the scenes of his youth, the hopes of coming time, he would seek another country, and in other scenes begin life again. Having resolved on this, he became calmer. He endeavoured to guide with prudence the steeds of destiny through the devious road which he had chosen, and bent all his efforts the better to conceal what he could not alter. The perfect confidence that subsisted between Perdita and him rendered every communication common between them. They opened each other's letters, even as, until now, the inmost folds of the heart of each was disclosed to the other. A letter came unawares. Perdita read it. Had it contained confirmation, she must have been annihilated. As it was, trembling, cold, and pale, she sought Raymond. He was alone, examining some petitions lately presented. She entered silently, sat on a sofa opposite to him, and gazed on him with a look of such despair that wild shrieks and dire moans would have been tame exhibitions of misery compared to the living incarnation of the thing itself exhibited by her. At first he did not take his eyes from the papers. When he raised them, he was struck by the wretchedness manifest on her altered cheek. For a moment he forgot his own acts and fears, and asked with consternation, "'Dearest girl, what is the matter? What has happened?' "'Nothing,' she replied at first. "'And yet not so,' she continued, hurrying on in her speech. "'You have secrets, Raymond. "'Where have you been lately? "'Whom have you seen? "'What do you conceal from me? "'Why am I banished from your confidence? "'Yet this is not it. "'I do not intend to entrap you with questions. "'One will suffice. "'Am I completely a wretch?' "'With trembling hand she gave him the paper,' and sat white and motionless, looking at him while he read it. He recognised the handwriting of Evadne, and the colour mounted in his cheeks. With lightning speed he conceived the contents of the letter, all was now cast on one die. 
falsehood and artifice were trifles in comparison with the impending ruin he would either entirely dispel perdita's suspicions or quit her forever my dear girl he said i have been to blame but you must pardon me i was in the wrong to commence a system of concealment but i did it for the sake of sparing you pain and each day has rendered it more difficult for me to alter my plan besides i was instigated by delicacy towards the unhappy writer of these few lines perdita gasped well she cried we'll go on that is all this paper tells all i am placed in the most difficult circumstances i have done my best though perhaps i have done wrong my love for you is inviolate perdita shook her head doubtingly it cannot be she cried i know that it is not you would deceive me but i will not be deceived i have lost you myself my life do you not believe me said raymond haughtily to believe you she exclaimed i would give up all and expire with joy so that in death i could feel that you were true but that cannot be perdita continued raymond you do not see the precipice on which you stand you may believe that i did not enter on my present line of conduct without reluctance and pain i knew that it was possible that your suspicions might be excited but i trusted that my simple word would cause them to disappear i built my hope on your confidence do you think that i will be questioned and my replies disdainfully set aside do you think that i will be suspected perhaps watched cross-questioned and disbelieved i am not yet fallen so low my honour is not yet so tarnished you have loved me i adored you but all human sentiments come to an end let our affection expire but let it not be exchanged for distrust and recrimination heretofore we have been friends lovers let us not become enemies mutual spies i cannot live the object of suspicion you cannot believe me let us part exactly so cried perdita i knew that it would come to this are we not already parted does not a stream boundless as ocean deep as vacuum yawn between us raymond rose his voice was broken his features convulsed his manner calm as the earthquake cradling atmosphere he replied i am rejoiced that you take my decision so philosophically doubtless you will play the part of the injured wife to admiration sometimes you may be stung with the feeling that you have wronged me but the condolence of your relatives the pity of the world the complacency which the consciousness of your own immaculate innocence will bestow will be excellent balm me you will never see more raymond moved towards the door he forgot that each word he spoke was false he personated his assumption of innocence even to self-deception have not actors wept as they portrayed imagined passion a more intense feeling of the reality of fiction possessed raymond he spoke with pride he felt injured perdita looked up she saw his angry glance his hand was in the lock of the door she started up she threw herself on his neck she gasped and sobbed he took her hand and leading her to the sofa sat down near her her head fell on his shoulder she trembled alternate changes of fire and ice ran through her limbs observing her emotion he spoke with softened accents 
the blow is given i will not part from you in anger i owe you too much i owe you six years of unallayed happiness but they are past i will not live in the mark of suspicion the object of jealousy i love you too well in an eternal separation only can either of us hope for dignity and propriety of action we shall not then be degraded from our true characters faith and devotion have hitherto been the essence of our intercourse these lost let us not cling to the seedless husk of life the unkerneled shell you have your child your brother idris adrian and you cried perdita the writer of that letter uncontrollable indignation flashed from the eyes of raymond he knew that this accusation at least was false entertain this belief he cried hug it to your heart make it a pillow to your head an opiate for your eyes i am content but by the god that made me hell is not more false than the word you have spoken perdita was struck by the impassioned seriousness of his asseverations she replied with earnestness i do not refuse to believe you raymond on the contrary i promise to put implicit faith in your simple word only assure me that your love and faith towards me have never been violated and suspicion and doubt and jealousy will at once be dispersed we shall continue as we have ever done one heart one hope one life i have already assured you of my fidelity said raymond with disdainful coldness triple assertions will avail nothing where one is despised i will say no more for i can add nothing to what i have already said to what you before contemptuously set aside this contention is unworthy of both of us and i confess that i am weary of replying to charges at once unfounded and unkind perdita tried to read his countenance which he angrily averted there was so much of truth and nature in his resentment that her doubts were dispelled her countenance which for years had not expressed a feeling unallied to affection became again radiant and satisfied she found it however no easy task to soften and reconcile raymond at first he refused to stay to hear her but she would not be put off secure of his unaltered love she was willing to undertake any labour use any entreaty to dispel his anger she obtained a hearing he sat in haughty silence but he listened she first assured him of her boundless confidence of this he must be conscious since but for that she would not seek to detain him she enumerated their years of happiness she brought before him past scenes of intimacy and happiness she pictured their future life she mentioned their child tears unbidden now filled her eyes she tried to disperse them but they refused to be checked her utterance was choked she had not wept before raymond could not resist these signs of distress he felt perhaps somewhat ashamed of the part he acted of the injured man he who was in truth the injurer and then he devoutly loved perdita the bend of her head her glossy ringlets the turn of her form were to him subjects of deep tenderness and admiration as she spoke her melodious tones entered his soul he soon softened towards her comforting and caressing her and endeavouring to cheat himself into the belief that he had never wronged her 
Raymond staggered forth from this scene, as a man might do, who had been just put to the torture, and looked forward to when it would be again inflicted. He had sinned against his own honour, by affirming, swearing to, a direct falsehood. True, this he had palmed on a woman, and it might therefore be deemed less base by others, not by him, for whom had he deceived? His own trusting, devoted, affectionate Perdita, whose generous belief galled him doubly, when he remembered the parade of innocence with which it had been exacted. The mind of Raymond was not so rough cast, nor had been so rudely handled in the circumstance of life, as to make him proof to these considerations. On the contrary, he was all nerve, his spirit was as a pure fire, which fades and shrinks from heavy contagion of foul atmosphere. But now the contagion had become incorporated with his essence, and the change was the more painful. Truth and falsehood, love and hate, lost their eternal boundaries. Heaven had rushed in to mingle with hell, while his sensitive mind turned to a field for such battle was stung to madness. He heartily despised himself. He was angry with Perdita, and the idea of Evadne was attended by all that was hideous and cruel. His passions, always his masters, acquired fresh strength from the long sweep in which love had cradled them. The clinging weight of destiny bent him down. He was goaded, tortured, fiercely impatient of that worst of miseries, the sense of remorse. This troubled state yielded by degrees to sullen animosity and depression of spirits, his dependents, even his equals, if in his present post he had any, were startled to find anger, division, and bitterness in one before distinguished for suavity and benevolence of manner. He transacted public business with distaste, and hastened from it to the solitude which was at once his bane and relief. He mounted a fiery horse, that which had borne him forward to victory in Greece, he fatigued himself with deadening exercise, losing the pangs of a troubled mind in animal sensation. He slowly recovered himself, yet at last, as one might from the effects of poison, he lifted his head from above the vapours of fever and passion into the still atmosphere of calm reflection. He meditated on what was best to be done. He was first struck by the space of time that had elapsed since madness rather than any reasonable impulse had regulated his actions. A month had gone by, and during that time he had not seen Evadne. Her power, which was linked to a few of the enduring emotions of his heart, had greatly decayed. He was no longer her slave, no longer her lover. He would never see her more, and by the completeness of his return, deserved the confidence of Perdita. Yet as he thus determined, fancy conjured up the miserable abode of the Greek girl, an abode which, from noble and lofty principle, she had refused to exchange for one of greater luxury. He thought of the splendour of her situation and appearance when he first knew her. He thought of her life at Constantinople, attended by every circumstance of oriental magnificence, of her present penury her daily task of industry, her lawn state, her faded famine-struck cheek. Compassion swelled his breast. He would see her once again, 
he would devise some plan for restoring her to society and the enjoyment of her rank their separation would then follow as a matter of course again he thought how during this long month he had avoided perdita flying from her as from the stings of his own conscience but he was awake now all this should be remedied and future devotion erase the memory of this only blot on the serenity of their life he became cheerful as he thought of this and soberly and resolutely marked out the line of conduct he would adopt he remembered that he had promised perdita to be present this very evening the nineteenth of october anniversary of his election as protector at a festival given in his honour good augury should this festival be of the happiness of future years first he would look in on evadne he would not stay but he owed her some account some compensation for his long and unannounced absence and then to perdita to the forgotten world to the duties of society the splendour of rank the enjoyment of power after the scene sketched in the preceding pages perdita had contemplated an entire change in the manners and conduct of raymond she expected freedom of communication and a return to those habits of affectionate intercourse which had formed the delight of her life but raymond did not join her in any of her avocations he transacted the business of the day apart from her he went out she knew not whither the pain inflicted by this disappointment was tormenting and keen she looked on it as a deceitful dream and tried to throw off the consciousness of it but like the shirt of nessus it clung to her very flesh and ate with sharp agony into her vital principle she possessed that though such an assertion may appear a paradox which belongs to few a capacity of happiness her delicate organization and creative imagination rendered her peculiarly susceptible of pleasurable emotion the overflowing warmth of her heart by making love a plant of deep root and stately growth had attuned her whole soul to the reception of happiness when she found in raymond all that could adorn love and satisfy her imagination but if the sentiment on which the fabric of her existence was founded became commonplace through participation the endless succession of attentions and graceful actions snapped by transfer his universe of love wrested from her happiness must depart and then be exchanged for its opposite the same peculiarities of character rendered her sorrows agonies her fancy magnified them her sensibility made her for ever open to their renewed impression love envenomed the heart-piercing sting there was neither submission patience nor self-abandonment in her grief she fought with it struggled beneath it and rendered every pang more sharp by resistance again and again the idea recurred that he loved another she did him justice she believed that he felt a tender affection for her but give a paltry prize to him who in some life-pending lottery has calculated on the possession of tens of thousands and it will disappoint him more than a blank the affection and amity of a raymond might be inestimable but beyond that affection embosomed deeper than friendship was the indivisible treasure of love take the sum in its completeness 
and no arithmetic can calculate its price. Take from it the smallest portion, give it but the name of parts, separate it into degrees and sections, and like the magician's coin, the valueless gold of the mine is turned to vilest substance. There is a meaning in the eye of love, a cadence in its voice, an irradiation in its smile, the talisman of whose enchantments one can only possess. Its spirit is elemental, its essence single, its divinity a unit. The very heart and soul of Raymond and Perdita had mingled, even as two mountain brooks that join in their descent and murmuring and sparkling flow over shining pebbles beside starry flowers. But let one desert its primal course, or be dammed up by choking obstruction, and the other shrinks in its altered banks. Perdita was sensible of the failing of the tide that fed her life. Unable to support the slow withering of her hopes, she suddenly formed a plan, resolving to terminate at once the period of misery, and to bring to an happy conclusion the late disastrous events. The anniversary was at hand of the exaltation of Raymond to the office of protector, and it was customary to celebrate this day by a splendid festival. A variety of feelings urged Perdita to shed double magnificence over the scene. Yet as she arrayed herself for the evening gala, she wondered herself at the pains she took to render sumptuous the celebration of an event which appeared to her the beginning of her sufferings. Woe before the day, she thought, woe, tears and mourning betide the hour that gave Raymond another hope than love, another wish than my devotion, and thrice joyful the moment when he shall be restored to me. God knows I put my trust in his vows, and believe his asserted faith, but for that I would not seek what I am now resolved to attain. Shall two years more be thus passed, each day adding to our alienation, each act being another stone piled on the barrier which separates us? No, my Raymond, my only beloved, sole possession of Perdita. This night, this splendid assembly, these sumptuous apartments, and this adornment of your tearful girl, are all united to celebrate your abdication. Once, for me, you relinquished the prospect of a crown. That was in days of early love, when I could only hold out the hope, not the assurance of happiness. Now you have the experience of all that I can give, the heart's devotion, taintless love, and unhesitating subjection to you. You must choose between these and your protectorate. This, proud noble, is your last night. Perdita has bestowed on it all of magnificent and dazzling that your heart best loves. But from these gorgeous rooms, from this princely attendance, from power and elevation, you must return with tomorrow's sun to our rural abode. For I would not buy an immortality of joy by the endurance of one more week, sister, to the last. Brooding over this plan, resolved when the hour should come, to propose and insist upon its accomplishment, secure of his consent, the heart of Perdita was lightened, or rather exalted. Her cheek was flushed by the expectation of struggle, her eyes sparkled with the hope of triumph. 
having cast her fate upon a die, and feeling secure of winning, she, whom I have named as bearing the stamp of Queen of Nations on her noble brow, now rose superior to humanity, and seemed in calm power to arrest with her finger the wheel of destiny. She had never before looked so supremely lovely. We, the Arcadian shepherds of the tale, had intended to be present at this festivity, but Perdita wrote to entreat us not to come, or to absent ourselves from Windsor, for she, though she did not reveal her scheme to us, resolved the next morning to return with Raymond to our dear circle, there to renew a course of life in which she had found entire felicity. Late in the evening she entered the apartments appropriated to the festival. Raymond had quitted the palace the night before. He had promised to grace the assembly, but he had not yet returned. Still she felt sure that he would come at last, and the wider the breach might appear at this crisis, the more secure she was of closing it for ever. It was, as I said, the 19th of October. The autumn was far advanced and dreary. The wind howled. The half-bare trees were despoiled of the remainder of their summer ornament. The state of the air, which induced the decay of vegetation, was hostile to cheerfulness or hope. Raymond had been exalted by the determination he had made, but with the declining day his spirits declined. First he was to visit Evadne, and then to hasten to the palace of the Protectorate. As he walked through the wretched streets in the neighbourhood of the luckless Greek's abode, his heart smote him for the whole course of his conduct towards her. First, his having entered into any engagement that should permit her to remain in such a state of degradation, and then, after a short wild dream, having left her to drear solitude, anxious conjecture, and bitter still, disappointed expectation. What had she done the while? How supported his absence and neglect? Light grew dim in these close streets, and when the well-known door was opened, the staircase was shrouded in perfect night. He groped his way up. He entered the garret. He found Evadne stretched speechless, almost lifeless, on her wretched bed. He called for the people of the house, but could learn nothing from them, except that they knew nothing. Her story was plain to him, plain and distinct as the remorse and horror that darted their fangs into him. When she found herself forsaken by him, she lost the heart to pursue her usual avocations. Pride forbade every application to him. Famine was welcomed as the kind porter to the gates of death, within whose opening folds she should now, without sin, quickly repose. No creature came near her as her strength failed. If she died, where could there be found on record a murderer whose cruel act might compare with his? What fiend more wanton in his mischief? What damned soul more worthy of perdition? But he was not reserved for this agony of self-reproach. He sent for medical assistance. The hours passed, spun by suspense into ages. The darkness of the long autumnal night yielded to day before her life was secure. He had her then removed to a more commodious dwelling, and hovered about her again and again to assure himself that she was safe. In the midst of his greatest suspense and fear as to the event, 
he remembered the festival given in his honour by Perdita. In his honour, then, when misery and death were affixing indelible disgrace to his name, honour to him whose crimes deserved a scaffold, this was the worst mockery. Still, Perdita would expect him. He wrote a few incoherent words on a scrap of paper, testifying that he was well, and bade the woman of the house take it to the palace and deliver it into the hands of the wife of the Lord Protector. The woman, who did not know him, contemptuously asked how he thought she should gain admittance, particularly on a festal night, to that lady's presence. Raymond gave her his ring to ensure the respect of the menials. Thus, while Perdita was entertaining her guests, and anxiously awaiting the arrival of her lord, his ring was brought her, and she was told that a poor woman had a note to deliver to her from its wearer. The vanity of the old gossip was raised by her commission, which, after all, she did not understand, since she had no suspicion, even now, that Evadne's visitor was Lord Raymond. Perdita dreaded a fall from his horse, or some similar accident, so the woman's answers woke other fears. From a feeling of cunning blindly exercised, the officious, if not malignant, messenger did not speak of Evadne's illness, but she garrulously gave an account of Raymond's frequent visits, adding to her narration such circumstances as, while they convinced Perdita of its truth, exaggerated the unkindness and perfidy of Raymond. Worst of all, his absence now from the festival, his message wholly unaccounted for, except by the disgraceful hints of the woman, appeared the deadliest insult. Again, she looked at the ring. It was a small ruby, almost heart-shaped, which she had herself given him. She looked at the handwriting, which she could not mistake, and repeated to herself the words, do not, I charge you, I entreat you, permit your guests to wonder at my absence. The while the old crone going on with her talk filled her ear with a strange melody of truth and falsehood. At length Perdita dismissed her. The poor girl returned to the assembly, where her presence had not been missed. She glided into a recess, somewhat obscured, and leaning against an ornamental column there placed, tried to recover herself. Her faculties were palsied. She gazed on some flowers that stood near, in a carved vase, that morning she had arranged them. They were rare and lovely plants, even now, all aghast as she was, she observed their brilliant colours and starry shapes. Divine infoliations of the spirit of beauty, she exclaimed, ye droop not, neither do ye mourn. The despair that clasps my heart has not spread contagion over you. Why am I not a partner of your insensibility, a sharer in your calm? She paused. To my task, she continued mentally. My guests must not perceive the reality, either as it regards him or me. I obey, they shall not, though I die the moment they are gone. They shall behold the antipodes of what is real, for I will appear to live, while I am dead. It required all her self-command to suppress the gush of tears self-pity caused at this idea. After many struggles she succeeded, and turned to join the company. All her efforts were now directed to the dissembling of her internal conflict. 
she had to play the part of a courteous hostess to attend to all to shine the focus of enjoyment and grace she had to do this while in deep woe she sighed for loneliness and would gladly have exchanged her crowded rooms for dark forest depths or a drear night-in-shadowed heath but she became gay she could not keep in the medium nor be as was usual with her placidly content every one remarked her exhilarations of spirit as all actions appear graceful in the eye of rank her guests surrounded her applaudingly although there was a sharpness in her laugh and an abruptness in her sallies which might have betrayed her secret to an attentive observer she went on feeling that if she had paused for a moment the checked waters of misery would have deluged her soul that her wrecked hopes would raise their wailing voices and that those who now echoed her mirth and provoked her repartees would have shrunk in fear from her convulsive despair her only consolation during the violence which she did herself was to watch the motions of an illuminated clock and internally count the moments which must elapse before she could be alone at length the rooms began to thin mocking her own desires she rallied her guests on their early departure one by one they left her at length she pressed the hand of her last visitor how cold and damp your hand is said her friend you are over-fatigued pray hasten to rest Perdita smiled faintly her guest left her the carriage rolling down the street assured the final departure then as if pursued by an enemy as if wings had been at her feet she flew to her own apartment she dismissed her attendants she locked the doors she threw herself wildly on the floor she bit her lips even to blood to suppress her shrieks and lay long a prey to the vulture of despair striving not to think while multitudinous ideas made a home of her heart and ideas horrid as furies cruel as vipers and poured in with such swift succession that they seemed to jostle and wound each other while they worked her up to madness at length she rose more composed not less miserable she stood before a large mirror she gazed on her reflected image her light and graceful dress the jewels that studded her hair and encircled her beauteous arms and neck her small feet shod in satin her profuse and glossy tresses all were to her clouded brow and woe-begone countenance like a gorgeous frame to a dark tempest portraying picture vase am i she thought vase brimful of despair's direst essence farewell perdita farewell poor girl never again will you see yourself thus luxury and wealth are no longer yours in the excess of your poverty you may envy the homeless beggar most truly am i without a home i live on a barren desert which wide and interminable brings forth neither fruit or flower in the midst is a solitary rock to which thou perdita art chained and thou seest the dreary level stretched far away she threw open her window which looked on the palace garden light and darkness were struggling together and the orient was streaked by roseate and golden rays one star only trembled in the depth of the kindling atmosphere the morning air blowing freshly over the dewy plants rushed into the heated room 
all things go on thought perdita all things proceed decay and perish when noontide is past and the weary day has driven her team to their western stalls the fires of heaven rise from the east moving in their accustomed path they ascend and descend the skyey hill when their course is fulfilled the dial begins to cast westward an uncertain shadow the eyelids of day are opened and birds and flowers the startled vegetation and fresh breeze awaken the sun at length appears and in majestic procession climbs the capital of heaven all proceeds changes and dies except the sense of misery in my bursting heart ay all proceeds and changes what wonder then that love has journeyed on to its setting and that the lord of my life has changed we call the supernal lights fixed yet they wander about yonder plain and if i look again where i looked an hour ago the face of the eternal heavens is altered the silly moon and inconstant planets vary nightly their erratic dance the sun itself sovereign of the sky ever and anon deserts his throne and leaves his dominions to night and winter nature grows old and shakes in her decaying limbs creation has become bankrupt what wonder then that eclipse and death have led to destruction the light of thy life o perdita end of volume one chapter eight